Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Once again, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Dave Hahn, and I am once again privileged to be able to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we have been in the book of Mark, which has been a huge blessing. Uh, if I'm honest, I, I've been a believer for about um, 22 years or so, and I don't know that I have ever gone through the book of Mark as a whole uh, as a congregation uh, in, a, in a teaching thing. I've read it, obviously, but never having gone through it. And it's just been such a huge encouragement to me, so I hope it has been for you as well. So one of the first cars I had in my teenage years was a 1980 Oldsmobile sedan. I bought it from friends of my parents, knowing that it had issues, but my dad is handy, so I had confidence that things would get fixed. It had a saggy roof inside of the car, so you'd have to kind of duck to keep it from hitting your head. It had a hole in the muffler, and it burned oil. This car belched so much smoke out of its rear end, it looked like I was driving some kind of James Bond spy vehicle that had like a smoke screen button in the console. That's the kind of thing that it was. So, knowing that it had these issues with some sewing pins, spray adhesive, and duct tape in hand, my dad and I got to work. We're going to fix this thing up. It's such a guy thing to think, isn't it? Now, there's something to be said about recognizing what you've got and being grateful for it. There is something to be said about not being wasteful. There's value in trying to restore what is broken and maintain something as long as you can. That's why God created sewing needles and duct tape and WD-40 and superglue. That's what that's all for. But sometimes the old things need to go. Sometimes there is just no fixing it and something new is needed. And beginning in Genesis 3, at the fall of man, sin entered the world and broke stuff. And over time, some things have gotten worse, and no matter how often or how hard we have tried, mankind has just not been able to make things right. It's as though we need someone bigger and someone better to do what we cannot. And 2,000 years ago, God sent his only begotten son to the world to begin the work of restoring what has been lost and making new what has been broken. In the Gospel of Mark, we have seen Jesus doing and saying things that are completely new to his audience, turning the old system on its head, challenging what had always been done. We see Jesus be baptized 
though he himself did not sin. He called ordinary fishermen, not religious leaders, to be his first disciples. He ate and he drank with sinners and tax collectors before they had repented. He touched the untouchable. He loved the unlovable. He forgave the unforgivable. Jesus was radical. And what he was doing, make no mistake, my friends, was new. And in our passages today, Jesus continues in that theme of introducing something new while at the same time challenging and confronting the old. So beginning in verse 18, we are told that John the Baptist's disciples and Pharisees were fasting. And for those of you not familiar, that's basically abstaining from food and drink, at least in this context, for a certain period of time. And Jesus was asked, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You see, Pharisees fasted weekly on Mondays and Thursdays, likely in obedience to laws that they had made, laws that were beyond what God had ordained. Because the Mosaic law, according to Scripture, only required one fast a year on the Day of Atonement during Yom Kippur. All other fasts were and still are voluntary. And the fast that God required was, at its heart, a form of self-denial. But the fast that the Pharisees and John's disciples were participating in were different. These fasts, according to Jesus, were for show. The religious leaders of the day made a spectacle of all that they did. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you can hear Jesus confront them about those things. Whether it was giving to the poor, praying to God, or making darn sure that people knew they were fasting. Listen to Matthew 6, verse 16, from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said specific to fasting, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In its purest sense, fasting was an expression of brokenheartedness and longing and desperation in regards to sin or difficult circumstances. But unbeknownst to the people of Israel, their sins were about to be dealt with once and for all. The salvation and kingdom that they longed for had come. In the person of a savior and king who called a tax collector to be his disciple who touched and healed a leper, who forgave and healed a paralytic, who associated himself with sinners, and who, along with his disciples, did not fast. As one commentator put it, what the Pharisees were fasting with a view toward, Jesus and his disciples were already celebrating. 
See, the focus of verses 18 and 19 isn't whether to fast or not, but the significance of fasting. And so Jesus answered their question. Beginning in verse 19, he says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. See, the term bridegroom is one that Jesus used exclusively to describe himself. Though it was not used to describe the Messiah in the Old Testament. So it wasn't something that the religious leaders would have understood in context of him using it. And like the term the Son of Man from earlier in Mark, the term bridegroom had deep associations in the Jewish mind. So what was its significance? Why use wedding language here at all? Well, in Jesus' day, marriage and the ceremonies that followed were a big deal. I would even venture to say more so than today. And here's what I mean. Marriages were usually arranged by the fathers of both the bride and the groom, and this was called a betrothal. And a betrothal was just as binding as the marriage itself. Some children were betrothed to one another at a very young age, and at marrying age, it was customary for the bride to join the groom's father's household. And after the betrothal, the groom would return to his father's house and prepare a place for he and his future bride to live and to consummate the marriage. And when the bridal chamber was complete, after about a year or so, the groom would return for his bride. Though the bride would not know the specific day or hour of his return, it was usually announced with shouts and a trumpet blast so the bride could be forewarned. And the wedding ceremony and the celebration that followed would last for at least a week. A huge celebration thrown by the groom's family, oftentimes the entire village being invited. Who's invited an entire town to their wedding? One commentator remarked, in that time, rabbis declared that if the observance of any law came in the way of having a good time during a wedding, you didn't have to keep the law. At weddings, joy was more important than religious rituals. This is why Jesus is using that illustration. So the imagery Jesus used here of being a groom and having a bride would not have been lost on his hearers. But Jesus, as he often did, turned tradition upside down and put himself at the center of what was being observed. In the Old Testament, you see, God described himself as a husband to his people Israel. Most notably, in the book of Hosea, where he is a husband with an immovable and undying love to an unfaithful wife, Israel. And Jesus, in verse 19, is claiming oneness with God by referring to himself as the bridegroom, as the husband. Yes, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, but he is also the groom-to-be of those he was betrothed to by his Father in heaven. Do you see that? And those he has called, forgiven, and granted eternal life to 
are his bride. In his ascension, like a bridegroom, Jesus returned to his father's house to prepare a place for us. And one day, with a shout from heaven and a trumpet blast, he will return for us. And the marriage ceremony will commence and we will partake in what Revelation 19 calls the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is the imagery. And that feast, by the way, will last a heck of a lot longer than a week. This is the picture, my friends, that Christ is beginning to paint in Mark chapter 2. And it is not the answer that those who question him would have expected. See, a wedding engagement is not a time to mourn, depending on who your kid is marrying, I suppose. Not generally. A wedding engagement is not a time to be brokenhearted. The kingdom of God and his salvation has come. That's what Jesus was saying to the scribes in verse 19. He was saying, my disciples should not and cannot fast. The bridegroom is here. The wedding is on. And it is time to celebrate. I love how the message translates verse 19. Jesus said, when you're celebrating a wedding, you don't skimp on the cake and wine. You feast. Later, you may need to pull in your belt, but not now. As long as the bride and groom are with you, you have a good time. No one throws cold water on a friendly bonfire. This is kingdom come. Continuing in verse 20 of the ESV. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and, they, and then they will fast in that day. Here in verse 20, we have our first forward look to the cross of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. This is the first illusion that Jesus is making to where he is headed. You see, Jesus knows that in less than three years, he will be killed on a cross and in effect be taken away from his bride. When I'm gone, Jesus said, my disciples will mourn. But while I am here, it is good and it is right to celebrate because that is what you do at a wedding. Now the notion of celebrating during a wedding was not new to Jesus' hearers, but Jesus being a groom and his followers being his bride would have been a very new idea. So in verses 21 and 22, Jesus uses a new way to juxtapose the old with the new. Two ways, actually. He was looking to illustrate the incompatibility of the old and the new and to, to further declare that a new day had come. Listen to verses 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus is speaking right to the heart of his hearers with both of these illustrations. First, new patches on old clothes. People of this time and place did not have closets full of clothes. 
They likely had one outfit that they wore each day, and like our clothes today, they would occasionally wear out, and they couldn't just head up to Kohl's 30% off sale to pick up some new stuff. They needed to mend what had been torn. And new cloth, when you patch it on old, shrinks. And when the cloth that had not yet shrunk was sewn to the cloth that had been shrunk, a tear would develop, one worse than what was originally part of that garment. And as such, it was not wise to attach new cloth to old garments. And these people knew that. They knew that those two things were incompatible. The same principle applies to new wine in old wineskins. New or fresh wine is not fully fermented. And the process of fermentation produces gases that cause whatever vessel it is in to stretch if it has the ability to do so. That's probably why we put wine in glass now. So putting new wine into an already stretched wineskin would have caused the old non-pliable wineskin to burst and destroy the wine. And the second illustration, like the first, would have hit home with Jesus' hearers. It hits home with me. I don't like stories about hearing wine being destroyed. Those listening to Jesus understood the science behind making and storing wine. They knew what happened during fermentation and that putting new wine into an old wineskin would destroy the wine and the wineskin because the two were incompatible And what each of these illustrations have in common is this. First, the new had the power to destroy the old when the two were commingled. That's what we're seeing in this. And second, there was life in the new that the old no longer possessed. The old had already shrunk and wasn't moving anymore. The wineskins had already stretched You see, new cloth is alive as it moves and as it shrinks. New wine lives as the gases are formed and it ferments, as it pushes on and expands old wineskins, and both the old cloth and the old wineskin end up ruined when you commingle them. And so it is. When the old and lifeless religious systems are commingled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The life of Christ cannot be poured into dead and empty spirituality. You can't sow the gospel onto self-righteousness. You can't patch up the law with grace because Jesus is alive and he makes the old things new and he doesn't commingle with what is dead. He raises the dead, and he gives new life. And now that Jesus, our Savior and our Bridegroom, has come, everything is new, and everything is different, including the disciplines and the dynamics of our spiritual practices. See, mourning and desperation over sins and trials should no longer be our motivation. Because the thing that we most long for, that which we most needed, God with us, Emmanuel, has 
come. We have received everything in Christ. Because Jesus died and rose again, every sin is forgiven, and strength and grace for every trial is assured. So our posture is one of celebration, where we gladly receive what we have already been given. And as we grow in the fullness of who Christ is and who he is making us to be, we can depend upon and be obedient to God's spirit in every spiritual discipline, whether it be prayer or stillness or the reading and the studying of God's word or fasting. All of which, by the way, are ultimately expressions of worship. That's the why behind all of those things. So whatever discipline we enter into under the new covenant of grace, we do so with hearts and minds focused on and directed toward God, the one we most desire and our true source of nourishment and strength. This is especially true if we fast. And we are just under, incredibly, just under two weeks away from Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. And some of us, Catholic background or no, observe some kind of voluntary fast during the Lenten season. But what does fasting look like under a new covenant of grace? Where Jesus has come, where sins have been forgiven, and where we long for Christ's second coming. Under the new covenant, fasting rests on the finished work of Christ, our bridegroom, where we have already received the first fruits of what we have been promised but we still long for more. So now as we fast and our strength decreases, the spirit of God within us increases. As our body hungers for the physical, we are filled with the spiritual. And as our body is deprived of what it most wants, our souls receive what they most need. And we find ourselves renewed because we have been dependent upon the only one who satisfies. See, the purpose of fasting as believers under a new covenant is not to punish our flesh. It is not an end in itself. Rather, it is a time to focus on God as we long for his return As one author put it, fasting is an act of humility wherein we acknowledge our need to subdue the appetites of the flesh and focus more intently on who we are and what we have been given in Christ. You see, like most disciplines in Scripture, God is most interested in our intent. He's more concerned with why we're doing something than how we go about doing it. So whatever the spiritual discipline, we must ask ourselves, does it come from a place of wanting to seek God? To know and to love him more 
Or does it come from a place of wanting to impress God or to impress others as the Pharisees did? Maybe for you it's an act of penance. Asking the one who spilled his blood on your behalf to forgive you for the sins he has already forgiven. Friends, the work of salvation is finished. And our spiritual behaviors must reflect it. Personally, I've found a couple of questions helpful in determining the what and the how of my spiritual behaviors and disciplines. The first question that I tend to ask myself is, what is God looking to build into me and do through me? Places that I'm weak, places that I haven't entered into, places that I'm keeping him at an arm's length. What is he looking to build into me and what is he looking to do through me? And how might this spiritual discipline or behavior help? The second question is, how will this discipline further build God's kingdom and be a ministry to others. See, it doesn't end with us. And I ask God to lead me in that, whatever that thing is. And when I inevitably blow it, I depend on God's grace to help me begin again. Believing that he will complete in me what he has begun. Because while the journey of a believer is uncertain and there's steps forwards and backwards, the destination is sure. And arriving at that destination is not dependent upon you and me getting it right. I think we can be too hard on ourselves when it comes to our personal growth in spiritual disciplines. We are certainly far less patient than God is. So, do you know those accusatory, guilt-ridden, disappointment-filled thoughts that pop into your head when you've blown it? That's not God. That is not God. That voice belongs to Satan. He loves to accuse us. He always has. And he loves to tell us how disappointed God must be in us. But don't you believe it. Don't believe it. See, God loves and loved us perfectly when we were his enemies. Worse off than we are now. And his love for us doesn't have anything to do with us being lovable or doing the right things. The grace of God does not say, I love you, if it says, I love you anyway. It says, I love you anyway. That's how God always has loved, and it's how God always will love. Friends, the voice of God encourages and cheers long before God disciplines. And any punishment we do deserve is the one that Jesus took in full on the cross on our behalf. There is none left for you or for me. And if the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross did not cause him to give up on us, 
Nothing will. Do you think there is anything that we can do to him today that surpasses the suffering he experienced on the cross? Where he absorbed all sin for all time? So a friend of mine has a nine-month-old son who just started walking. And he showed me the video of that moment at lunch the other day. So his son started out in that kind of crawl position. And then he kind of stood himself up, you know, and did that wobble. And he started stumbling to his parents, one of whom was running the video and the other one who was doing this thing and backing up so he had something to walk to, right? Why do we do that to our kids? (laughs) And after a few seconds, he took that first big step, right? That boom. And then another one. And then another one. And then, oof, over on his arms and his face. Do you know what I heard next in that video? Cheering and clapping and rejoicing. Their baby boy started walking. And they were over the moon, rightly so. And everyone in this room knows what I'm talking about. Even if it's not your kid, it's awesome to watch. Do you know what I didn't hear in that video? Stupid kid. Three steps? Ah, what a disappointment. I didn't hear that. My guess is that for you who have kids, you've never said that. No, we rejoice in those moments, right? We rejoice in those moments. And as imperfect parents, we pick them up and we hug them and we kiss them so they can try again. How much more then, as a perfect father, must God do infinitely more for us as we grow and mature into who he says we already are? Friends, what if the reason that we give up on or never begin Spiritual disciplines is because we see God as frustrated and disappointed rather than full of grace, full of love, and patient. And as one who delights and finds joy in the most wobbly of steps toward him. Friends, God is looking to lovingly remove our hands from the things that we cling to and place them firmly upon him, beckoning us. And he is wooing us as a loving father to take steps in his direction, empowering us by his spirit to go further than we believe we otherwise could in prayer and stillness, and the reading and the study of his word, and as appropriate, fasting are just some of the ways that God does that. So, what church activities do you engage in without understanding why you do them or who they're pointing you to? What spiritual disciplines do you begrudgingly obey but find no life or joy in? If someone asked you to prove today that you are a Christian, would you point to your religious behaviors or are you resting solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ? 
Friends, Mark wrote this gospel to Gentile Christians primarily, many of whom had not and did not observe Jewish fasts or behaviors. So imagine the encouragement verses like those we read today would have been to them, where the person of Jesus, his authority, and his gospel message reigned supreme, where the lifestyle and practices of his disciples were ones that they themselves could identify with and imitate. And for most of us in that room, we're in that exact same place. So let these verses be an encouragement to you. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes the old new. And it is available to those who have only known the old, and it is available to those who have known nothing but the new. Where there was once self-righteousness in Christ, there is grace. Where there was once willful disobedience in Christ, there is repentance. Where there was once prideful religiosity in Christ, there is humility. Where there was once ritual in Christ, there is relationship. Where there was once tradition and ceremony in Christ, there is heart transformation. And where there was once the approval of men in Christ, there is now the full approval of God. So that tattered old Oldsmobile of mine didn't last very long. In some ways, it was dead on arrival. (laughs) That sagging ceiling really did drive me crazy. The billowing smoke was embarrassing, and the loud muffler was a civic nuisance. And I wasn't the handiest or the wealthiest guy in the world. And spray adhesive, duct tape, and engine additives can only do so much. Because sometimes the old things need to go. And sometimes there's just no fixing it. And something new is needed. When things got broke in Genesis 3, God already had a plan in place. The Bible tells us he had one plan formed before the foundation of the world, and it was Jesus. He didn't come with religious patchwork, and he didn't come with spiritual duct tape. He came to make things new, and his work to that end has begun, but it is not yet finished. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we have tasted the new wine of the gospel. We have worn the new clothes of Christ's righteousness, and we have beheld his glory, but only in part. So today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, and you are longing, and you are desperate, let it be for him. Today, if you do know Christ, and you are brokenhearted and mourning and longing and desperate. Let it be for him and his return because in him we have been given all else. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love and worship and adore you.
because you have come for us and forgiven us of all our sin. You have taken that which is old and you have made it new. And you have raised the dead to the newness of life. Help us, Lord, to leave behind the old system of religiosity where we try to ascend to where you are through good works rather than receive by faith the gift of your son, Jesus, who came to us, fully man and fully God, to be our savior, our king, and our groom. Prepare us for the day where we are joined forever with him. Father, examine our hearts and reveal to us where we are longing and convince us that all our longings are met in you even the longing for your imminent return. Let us, as your bride, declare that a new day has come, a righteousness from God, a new wine that this world has not known, and an eternal glory to behold. Give us a desire for what only you can give and help us to receive it humbly and by faith. As you grow and mature and sanctify us, let us hear your encouragement and your cheers. As you discipline us, remind us that you only do so with those that you call your own, and that is for our good and your glory. Save the lost among us and unite those whom you have found. What good news we have to share, Lord, as your church. Help us to declare it in word and deed. And in Jesus' name we ask, amen.